Welcome to season two of The Reflection. We started this series in March 2020 after the announcement of the lockdown and COVID-19 began to change the world. For 20 weeks, academics, activists and journalists joined us to discuss everything from the UK government's mishandling of the pandemic, the growth of conspiracies, Black Lives Matter and what it was like to bear witness to the growth of existing local and global inequalities. For this season, our guests will be reflecting on the political climate of the past year and we'll be talking to authors who have released books in 2020 concerning matters of race and class. Welcome to another episode of The Reflection. We are really excited today to be joined by friend of the podcast and alumni, Alana Lentin, who is based at Western Sydney University. Alana is a race critical scholar and an anti-racist, widely published, cited, especially on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good book, man. Big inspiration for us here. Go back to the catalogue and first of all, before you listen to this episode, listen to our episode of Alana, which is titled Why Race? still matters which is based on the title of her book from 2020 we're going to be reflecting today on similar themes what we did a few weeks ago talking a bit about what it was like for alana publishing this key canonical text i would i would argue i I would argue because i actually recommend it i use it all the time i I literally use it all the time three three books you recommend yeah (laughs) christina sharp yeah. And Imogen's book. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Standard. Standard. The Holy Standard. Grail. The Holy Grail. <laughs> <laughs> Alana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, I think I think chatting with you uh, last year was one of the highlights of my year. Um, oh. It's, yeah. And I listen, as you know, I listen to you every, every time there's an episode. I really look forward to it and I really enjoy it. And I learn so much from the work that you do. And I think it's really important you know, to for us to say how important the work that you do is. Thank you so much for saying that. Like listeners will know how much that kind of praise from you yeah. means to us. I guess one of the things that we would really like to start off by talking about is a bit about what it was like publishing Why Race Still Matters in 2020. And one of Alana's primary arguments in that book is about race as a technology of power. Yeah, it would just be really good to just get some reflections from you, Alana, on the past year and publishing your book. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, it's really it's really nice to have a chance to to reflect on that. Um, I feel like we're still in 2020. I know a lot of people say that we are in crisis. We are in crisis globally. Our bodies, our minds are suffering all around the world. But at the same time, 2020, perhaps because of the crisis that the world has been flung into, has also been a year of struggle and resistance um, the likes of which I think many people have said are almost unprecedented or at least recall earlier times of, of struggle against racism, against colonialism, um, against, uh, you know, entrenched discrimination and exploitation. So in a sense, bringing out the book, which was based on, I suppose, you know, stuff that I've been thinking about for a number of years before. And, and you know, to a certain extent, the argument recalls some of those arguments that I'd already put out there and already had the chance to discuss with people, particularly about the concept of not racism, so this constant negation of racism, that structural negation of racism. 
other stuff that I'd written about um, in terms of what race does, so race as a technology or race as performative, race as having a function rather than being something that describes identity. You know, these are things that I had a chance to discuss. But what I think was gratifying about having it out there in this sort of momentous year and crisis-filled year was the sense that I felt from people, yourselves included, that it seemed to it seemed to speak to many concerns that people had had and many thoughts that they'd had. And uh, I was rereading the 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 wonderful review by. Just now, and one of the things that he notes is that it's not necessarily that I've, you know, captured new things for those who are engaged in reading and studying and, and acting against race and racism, but that they, it kind of brings it into relief in a sense. So it kind of, you know, sharpens, you know, our discussions. And that for me is a wonderful, you know, tribute because, yeah, I, I don't believe that there are original ideas. I think there are original ways of presenting ideas. And all we can do is kind of try to help out by kind of pointing people in the right direction, I suppose. So if it's done that, then I'm really pleased. It's sick. One of the things that struck was about the social construction of race. We're very good at arguing against biological determinism of race, but we're not really good at explaining what, how it's socially constructed. One of the kind of um, slogans is that race is socially constructed, but we don't really explain it. And you go into mm. depth in that. Yeah, definitely. Just adding on to that and based on what Alana just said of Valo's review, mm. I found the book really cathartic, especially last year when like all these struggles and resistances were like brought to the fore because the way Alana was talking about not racism, but also race as a technology and how it functions, but then also doing a kind of sensitive description about what that means within our social relations, I think sometimes is missing from our discussion. So we had a very frank conversation, the three of us mm. last year about like, mm. okay, like we can talk about race as a function, but like the process of racialization, so how that differs for different groups, sometimes do need to talk about sensitively in order to mm. get to the point of understanding race is still something we should be resisting. Yeah, I think it kind of touches on the idea that race is a political project. No one really sees it as that because it's a political project. It's mm. always shifting and changing. And if we see it as a political project, it's something that we can you can build solidarities against and work against. But I don't think people see it as that. Yeah. And just one more thing, Alana, before you come back, because <laughs> I'm just going to pick you up for a second. The other thing as well, T, like, mm. is a political project that affects people's everyday lives. Mm. So mm. people find it hard to grasp that racial literacy as to what's happening mm. because it's something which they can't, that is hard to see beyond your experience of that. And I think that the way Alana writes is sensitive to that and yeah. helps us, as you say, build the solidarity. So what people are not realising is that whether you're affected by it or not, it's the act of recognition. We kind of like push race scholars to think about what's happening with the everyday and how do we get people to the point of racial literacy. And I think that the book, particularly with what happened last year, Black Lives Matter, it was a really important resource and it continues to be a really important resource for help for doing that work. Thank you. I mean, what I want to say about that, and I again, I thank you for recognizing that or for seeing that, because part of where I'm trying to come from is from a position of thinking exactly what you said earlier, which is because people, race shapes the everyday experience. Um, and it is so um, bound up with how we are able to, to navigate life, the kinds of opportunities we have, and literally whether or not we're, we're healthy or not, whether, you know, and this is what we're seeing so clearly in COVID, whether we can move or not, 
um, you know, whether we can, um, you know, whether we can study or not. So many different things that affect our daily lives. And at the same time, race works and is still so, uh, you know, important in terms of structuring, uh, you know, these realities because it's supposed to speak to something about the essence of oneself or one's group. And so it's really, really hard to disentangle your experience, which says, you know, I as person X is being discriminated against along these axes from this notion that actually this is not about my identity. This is not about something that's integral to myself, but something that's acting upon me from the outside. So, so race is so cunning in a sense, because not only does it constantly shift and transform and, and you know, uh, meld to the circumstances of the particular conditions of, you know, the, the time in which we're in and the place in which we're in, but it also does that work of kind of embedding itself in one's own consciousness to the extent that it's really hard to disentangle one's sense of self from the racializing discourses about oneself and of course that has you know it's a double-edged sword because in the one sense as we know in terms of anti-racism movements that has been used to great effect so the kind of identification with the race as such has been used in order to empower in order to throw off domination in order to build group solidarity and build power right uh, of anti-racist and anti-colonialist resistance but that's always a kind of a gamble because with that always comes the kind of the, the integration of you know racial identity and then the ability i think with that to to re-racialize in a sense to to racialize outwards against others and to splinter potential solidarity so i think the one thing that's been really encouraging in terms of the last year is i think there's been quite a sharp move away from that splintering and quite a maybe it's the crisis again that has thrown people into the sense of what we really need to do is think again how about the political nature of race and about the fact that race's it, its purpose is to splinter, to categorize and to create ruptures. And what we want to do is to, is to resist that and to think not as race is something that's internal to us and something that we, we own, but as something that has been imposed upon us. But at the same time, we can say all of this intellectually, but we need to, as I think you were saying, remain sensitive to how difficult that is for people who are who are walking through this this landscape constantly and it's not a landscape that's external it's a landscape that's also internal yeah I, I completely agree Alana and I also agree with your point you just said about the splintering and that there has actually been a change because even if we think back mm. to we had a conversation the three of us I think it was in April mm. 2020 yeah and if I think about the types of things that I was in a way kind of challenging you on um, Alana to talk about was how different processes of racialization and how do I explain to for example black women that their experiences yes there is a very particular experience that you're having here but overall if we want freedom and liberation from what race does to us this is what we have to do we have to resist race but actually since that conversation we had in April I do think we are seeing possibly as yeah. a result of Black Lives Matter, possibly as a result of the political arrangements that have gone down with COVID-19, mm. that things are, people are changing, well, not people are changing, but yeah. people are learning more about these things. That's a slightly utopian yeah, 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 view, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I but I think that I have seen some of the things that Alana's saying, yeah. Basically, people aren't stupid. So yes. if we think about Black Lives Matter, one of the things that people saw through almost immediately was all of these corporations jumping onto it. Mm -hmm. Okay, corporations and, and municipal bodies and you name it, everybody was Black Lives Matter 
all the way. And as I say, people aren't stupid, so they could easily see through that. And it, you know, it, it, it speaks to earlier criticisms of you know the the superficiality of diversity politics and and you know the politics of multiculturalism that myself and other people have have critiqued for years. Um, but it came to a head because of the strength of the movement and this notion that that I think was felt very, very strongly that it was only this kind of groundswell of mobilization and this linking together of issues and causes, again, thrown against this, this background of, or this, not a background, this, this daily life of, of constant crisis, where people could see that this kind of wallpapering this diversity wallpapering was just, you know, so much, so much nonsense, really. Um, and that kind of, it, it was like, it was speeded up, right? So yes. that response that may have taken years in the past happened in a matter of weeks. It was like, it was all condensed. Um, and, and, and I think it's not just because the crisis sharpened people's, you know, consciousness. I think it was also a build up over a certain number of years where there was a lot of you know, there was there was a kind of a certain sense of fatigue with that same cycle of like, well, protests being met by multicultural accommodation, protests being met by the same kinds of responses again and again. Um, and a new generation that I think has learned the lessons from from the previous. And of course, it's utopian. But what do we have if we don't have some utopian okay. thinking? There's nothing else but left, really. My far right senses are tingling. No, no, no. Right. I was sitting there watching because obviously, not even the far right. It's, it's, no, no, it's, I mean, it's on the TV it's now, right? It's, it's on yeah, TV. But the far right is on TV. The far right is yeah. on our government. So what, yeah. What I was going to say, like, what do you think has happened to racism technology in the last year, given the pushback that we've seen? So given the voter suppression that we're seeing. That. Mm. These are open moves that parliaments are making to suppress mm. people's right to vote. The very foundations of democracies are in danger. Yesterday, I read an mm. article in Hungary about democratic backsliding, removing rights for the, um, yeah, I think it's the Roma people. If race is a technology and it's a political project, in this year, where's that political project gone to? Following on from Tiso's question as yeah. well, thinking about 2021 mm -hmm. as the pushback to the quote-unquote progressive conversations mm. about race that we had in 2020, what can we say about the response from the elite? We're, we're just seeing a massive pushback. Like, you can't write it. Like, you couldn't write it. Yeah, it's, cra it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely it's a massive pushback. I think it's it's extremely true to, to identify this as a reaction to, um, as I said before, one of the most significant movements that we've seen in terms of um, anti-racism mobilization in decades. Um, and I think it's a clear signal of deeply entrenched white anxieties. But as, as again, Valu says in his review of my piece, it's important also to recognize this is not only happening in white majority societies, and he cites the case of India, but also we could look at Myanmar, we could look at other places as well in terms of repression of minoritized um, groups, et cetera. And I think it's very interesting to note that this is also happening at the level of opposition to particularly transgender people, mm -hmm. Um, and just the whole idea of, you know, if we think of Hungary, which you mentioned, not only is there, um, you know, nothing short of kind of fascist repression of Roma people, a huge um, step up in terms of public and open anti-Semitism, but also repression of um, sexualized and gendered minorities, including the right to, you know, we know that gender studies, for example, has been outlawed in Hungary. Um, etc. And we need to also look at Brazil as another example of this kind of counter attack, like on the level of the intellectual, um, you know, and in terms of education and knowledge 
this counterattack is very, very strong. So yeah, so I think simplifying it to a kind of a black-white binary is a little bit reductive. But if we look at whiteness as a kind of a, a structure of power and a kind of um, a way of, of thinking about power and modernity um, within a kind of a global colonial um, setup, if you like, planetary setup, then I think it's not a stretch to think that, that this is an expression of whiteness, even in majority non-white societies like India, for example, because it's operating in a very, very similar way to kind of Euro modernity, uh, coloniality, etc. So, and there's a deep sense of anxiety at play um, in, you know, in places like the UK, Australia, where I am in Europe, etc. It's very obvious that demography is playing a playing a key role um so demographic shifts is kind of whole you know the ascendance of the notion of white genocide as being you know something that came from the fringes of the far right into mainstream discourse so now for example um you know critical race theory is nothing short of white genocide according to some uh, pundits in the u.s um, any kind of critique of whiteness as a form of power is tantamount to wanting to throw all white people into the sea. And there's been kind of a, an acceptance wholesale of extreme right discourse, including the kind of discourse, I mean, let's call a spade a spade. This is the discourse that motivated Breivik in Norway, Tarrant in Aetura, uh, New Zealand, mm -hmm. etc. This is exactly what it is, being folded into acceptable discourse um, utilized by, by politicians and mainstream media and fueling, I don't like the word populism, but a kind of a, a nationalism, a kind of a groundswell of kind of nationalist pushback or ethno-nationalist pushback, wherein white people now openly talk of themselves as the, the main aggrieved minority. But I guess what I want to signal is that this is not a sharp turn, right? It's not something that's suddenly come upon us. It's been building up. So in the way I try to conceptualize not racism, which uh, I mean, I know you want me to define. So, I mean, I talk about it as a, a, as, a, as a form of discursive racist violence, because it's not just about denialism. It's not just about saying, no, what you're saying you're experiencing as racist is not really racist. It's also redefining racism from a white perspective that classes it purely at the level, on the level of morality. So if you're racist, you have to de facto be intentionally racist. You have to have malicious thoughts and you have to have kind of genocidal thoughts. So it, it, it de facto pushes out any possibility to think of what we would call institutional racism or more mundane kind of everyday racism as being racism because it's not at that extreme end. So, so this kind of not racism has become part and parcel of everyday normal discourse accepted at all levels, you know, and pushed by elites as a kind of an expression, I think, of this kind of deep anxiety about the future of the future viability of Euro white, you know, identity, society, culture, politics, etc. But it's again, it's something that's not come upon us overnight. It's something that's been building up and and has come to the to the head, I think, because of that massive mobilization, uh, anti-racist Black Lives Matter, you know, resistance. One of the things I wanted to ask you, Alana, in response to some of the things you've just said there is a really important lesson, I think, that uh, your book and also talking to you 
has helped me with is rethinking about the wages of whiteness and rethinking mm. about how people do understand that there is power within whiteness and actually like sometimes they will enact that so saying things aren't racism that's not just about ignorance there is a known praxis there of marginalizing people yeah the reason why I want to say that to you is because I want to ask you something else about this stuff on ignorance. Because one of the mm. things that I think we're seeing in the UK is this further fusion between those who want to resist Black Lives Matter, those that want to resist anti-racism and these um, trans-exclusionary radical feminists mm. as well. And there is a real, obviously those things have been overlapping. So the far right overlap with obviously racism, but also this mm. quote unquote gender criticalness, but we are yeah. seeing it played in sharp relief. And what I wanted to ask you about is some of the people that I am seeing try to say that these two things aren't related is it's shocking. Like it's not just within it's not just within the government where we're seeing this things happen it's with universities again i know this mm. stuff has been happening for a long time but it is really really mobilizing right now and the people particularly the quote-unquote people that describe themselves as feminists that can't see how they are playing into the mm. far right as well as like calling for harm to populations mm. is that back to the ignorance again like they do understand what they're doing yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think I'm very much a follower of, of Charles Mills's idea of white ignorance, which is a known, you know, sort of a performative ignorance, like, you know, and which masks the fact that people are knowing um, of the conditions in which they live. So even a concept like white privilege in the sense, you know, contested as it may be and problematic and insufficient as it may be. Um, it's something that we all understand, so we can use it for now. People know this. People know that they have certain privileges if they just stop to think about it, but they're deeply invested in thinking um, and kind of refusing that idea, just refusing. And I think that's because of the extent to which we've been sold this notion that everybody has equal rights. All we have to do is enact them, you know, and, and if you haven't enacted them, there's something there's something that you haven't done properly as an individual. Um, and, and, and that's because I think our our education systems and our political systems sell to us this notion of morality as being the primary mode in which people operate, you know, so you're either a good person or you're a bad person. If you're a bad person, you're a racist, but most people are good. So therefore there are no racists, right? For example. So yes, I think that the structural ignorance is at play, but I think, you know, to think about the conjuncture between transphobic politics and racist politics, um, I mean, there are many things that we could say about that and many things that I think that people who do that research, um, you know, could say more about than me. But one thing that I think is really interesting about this is something about um, how feminism is wielded in the same way that anti-racism is wielded. And I've written about this before when I uh, wrote about this kind of notion of anti-racism as being a badge or a shield. So you can say, well, I am an anti-racist. I have done X, Y, and Z. And one of the most typical uh, things is to say something like, well, you know, I fought against apartheid or, you know, I protested against apartheid. So you can't, if I have legitimate concerns about, for example, uh, Muslims being fundamentalists, for example, a particular <laughs> argument that I'm thinking about, then that's just legitimate concerns. It's common sense. It's nothing to do with being racist. And indeed, look at my history of anti-racism. And I think feminism is acting in, a, in, a, in the same way in relation to transphobia. I'm a feminist, therefore you can't call me 
um, you can't call me anything negative, right? And I think we need to be very attentive to how these badges are utilized because they're not just used the kind of progressive arenas, if you like, where I think, you know, TERFs would still see themselves as being progressive on many fronts. And they certainly, yes, of course, they completely refuse this notion that they are extremists or that they're in bed with the far right, even though we know that they are. Um, but it's also used increasingly by people in positions of power, um, particularly, I think, and this is the difficulty, this is sometimes the, ten, the, 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 the sensitive area, when people themselves are racialized. And you, of course, with the, some of the elements in the UK government are seeing this, and we saw this most clearly with the publication of the Sewell Report. Oh, I'm course. so glad you said it, Alana. Yeah. We, we want to get, we wanna get yeah. your thoughts. But of course, this is, where, this is where you marry together this facile understanding of what racism is so how can I be racist or how, let's phrase it another way, how can I be enacting racial rule if I am black, for example, right, or Muslim or, you know, Indian or whatever it might be, and I'm just thinking about some of the people who are on this commission, and if you think as well, the primacy, and this is something that I think we need to have a conversation about as kind of race theorists stroke anti-racist, the primacy of experience as the key modality in which to think about things and the way it can be repackaged in order to kind of refuse any analysis of a given situation as being objectively racist or transphobic or homophobic or mm -hmm. whatever it might be, right? And so it's very convenient, isn't it? Um, that you have this kind of marriage of these two, these two things coming together and this constant kind of um, appeal to the badge, either the badge of feminism, the badge of anti-racism, or indeed the badge of identity. You know, so a conservative uh, person of color might say, "Well, my parents came to this country and they worked hard and they picked themselves up by the whatever and etc." So why can't you do the same? Which yeah. is very much the Tony Sewell approach. And and I think that's what we're having, and that's very very difficult if you start from a position that's kind of places primacy on experience and identity to the detriment of looking at structures or projects of rule, then it's very hard to counter that kind of argument that actually I'm telling you as a black person, or let me speak for myself, I'm, you know, when I'm thinking about Palestine, I'm telling you as a Jewish person that this is anti-Semitic, you know, being critical of Israel is anti-Semitic, and therefore you can't tell me anything. You know, that is a disabling position. And I think there's, and it's no, you know, there's absolutely no, um, no surprise that we have militant Zionists uh, in bed with the far right, in bed with transphobic elements, in bed with, um, you know, those who, who, who are, you know, countering anti-racism, et cetera. I don't know if that quite answers your question. No, but it, it, it completes me thinking. It really does, because I just think it's something that I've just been, I, when I'm seeing people engage in this way and in particular seeing um, older anti-racists and I'm going to say it not sort of be more forthright in reckoning with these um, how these things overlap and how important they are to think about together it's, it's been very disappointing um, but mm. I think your analysis there like is helpful and they know what they're doing effectively. Some groups continue to be expensable and that is part of a wider yeah. structures of rule. So since the sewer report came out? Honestly, Alana, when the sewer report, <laughs> we call it the sewer report, when it came out yeah. on that Friday, we, yeah, call it, it, we call it sewer Friday. It was a hard Friday, man. That was, that was, re I don't know how you, like for you, like as someone that's worked on this stuff for years, mm. like I don't know how you've, like reading that stuff and seeing what was happening. Mm. 
we just found it absolutely just mentally debilitating. It took us so long to kind of recover mm. from seeing But it's just that. the conversations we were having, right? So someone would say to me like, well, if a black person saying there's no racism, there must not be any racism. And I'm like, mm. but it's but, like how we got, we went from mm. like talking to each other like every day in June, <laughs> like, oh my God, the black lives still matter. The black lives yeah, still yeah. matter. The black lives still matter. And we're like, yeah, they do. They do. To Super Friday. <laughs> and I guess yeah. that, that the year between yeah. those things, your books helped us make sense of it. But the pushback is so hard to, mm. it's hard to fight. It is. This is the critical time because, and this, and the Sewell report, you know, really played a critical role in all of this because what we're seeing, for example, with the pushback against critical race theory is this notion that race is being wielded in order to create further division in a society that could otherwise be equal. And I think, you know, to come back to the to the trans uh, issue, I think it's similar from a turf perspective that, you know, these trans people are coming to drive a wedge in the equalities that have been gained um, on the level of gender, gender relations, et cetera. And so it's almost like those who are fighting for a more just outcome are to blame from this right-wing perspective for creating the division and the ruptures, right? And this is, of course, so classic. Um, I mean, we've seen it happening again and again, but it's also, again, the work that race does. And it's but it places us in a vicious circle because there's no general racial literacy, then people, you know, don't, don't see that function of race as being one of creating division and rupture and splintering, but they see it only as a question of identity. And therefore me espousing race becomes me saying that, you know, this race, X race is better than that race or is more important, you know, and, and then the people say, okay, well, if I want to take you on your own terms, you're saying to me, well, race is really important. So here's a person of color telling you that this actually doesn't matter. And what we should be doing is just, you know, brushing this under the carpet and moving on into the sunny future. And this is the, the crucial thing that I think, you know, places us into such a difficult position because it's easy to say, well, you know, here we have the right wing. So for example, just to take one example, the Spectator magazine, you know, waxing lyrical about how great the, the Sewell report is. Um, and, and, but this has always happened. The question is how do we work together to dismantle the effects of that moment because even if the Sewell report doesn't actually change policy in the UK, the effects of the discourse will be felt, I think, for a number of years and not just in the UK, but also in other places because the echoes of that, you know, mm -hmm. certainly in Australia uh, and I think in, in Europe um, were felt really, really strongly. It's a mad because just think about what Anana just said then, it made me think about white working class Tuesday, which yeah, is what yeah. we call last Tuesday, <laughs> when the government said that talking about white privilege was causing divisions mm -hmm. in the classroom. Mm -hmm. To be slightly utopian and to be kind of hopeful, I do think their arguments, so what you've just put forward, Alana, their arguments of what they're saying, how they're trying to um, push us down, are very flimsy and yeah. quite weak. So actually, if you're in a debate with someone about what, how talking about whiteness in a classroom affects white kids, it's not that difficult, I don't think, in, in the context of a government that doesn't want to feed hungry children to, yeah. to resist those things, but it's just having but, uh, representatives but, that have got racial literacy to do that. But this is the thing, I think in, in this shift, 
I don't think people are willing to do that work anymore. When you demolish their arguments because they're not that sophisticated, they don't really care. And and yeah, I, I, I've yeah. seen this in, in, in real time. I've spoken to people and you break down their arguments and effectively they don't care. And that's that, absolutely right. That comes yeah. back to a lot, but that yeah. comes back to Alana's point because yeah. they know. That's why, <laughs> that's why we don't enter into arguments at that level. So mm-hmm. one of the things I'm, that I've been really careful not to do is to retort to that kind of thing. So that it's it's mm-hmm. it's really interesting, I think, to me how the classroom has become this locus, right? Because of course it's all about white innocence, you know, to mm-hmm. borrow Gloria Becker's term, right? This is where our innocent children live, mm-hmm. right? So we can't be having the dangerous ideology of critical race theory, you know, just bandied about in the classroom where our poor innocents are sitting, right? Because obviously the, the, our picture of innocence is a white, is white, you know, mm-hmm. again, to follow Becker. So there are no black children in the classroom, obviously, right? From this vision of things. However, if we descend to that level of of saying, okay, we're going to accept this, we're going to have this conversation about the classroom. And what I've seen very often is people retorting with, well, don't worry, because actually critical race theory isn't taught in schools, right? Um, They might not say don't worry, but the point is to say it's not taught in schools. Now, we all know it's not taught in schools, but that actually means that we're accepting the terms of the debate or the terms of the argument, right, where it is centered on this you know, this microcosm where it's all about infecting or affecting these poor, white, innocent children. And I think what we should be saying is, no, these are simple ideas that people can easily understand. Children can understand, and they do understand because they live with it 24-7. And we should be having criticality about race introduced into classrooms rather than saying, don't be discomforted. There's no critical race or there's no, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, whatever it might be, discussion of white privilege happening classes we need to be asking why do we not have more teachers who are brave enough to discuss these things with their with their students sick so sick we've spoke a lot about how difficult the pushback to black lives matter i guess one of the things that i would be interested in from a scholarly perspective alana and i think this can this will speak to wider um, audiences as well is the feedback that you've had on the book do you think that you're seeing some any kind of misreadings of what you've been trying to say about race yet? Do you think that people have understood your message in? The people who've engaged with the book in terms of people who've written reviews and people who've spoken to me about it, I had, you know, I've been really, really happy to have had the opportunity to speak to a lot of people, different conferences and seminars online. I mean, that's been one the thing about COVID that's been quite interesting for somebody like me who's stuck in Australia behind, you know, in Fortress, the Fortress mm-hmm. Island, because our borders are closed and they're not, not letting us out, is that COVID has certainly brought about this possibility to have online events in ways that weren't considered normal before. So I'm I'm happy for that. And I've had a lot of very positive feedback. And I don't think there have been uh, misreadings. I think, you know, I think certain people have decided to ignore the book, which is which is a whole issue. But, you know, that happens. I think it's been quite interesting to think about what parts of the book people have been more interested in and which parts have been kind of left off. And the only review to really take up, and I think there are more reviews coming, so I'm, I'm interested to hear mm-hmm. what's going to come. Um, but the only review to have taken up the issue that I think I found the trickiest to um, to work through, and I know that you're interested in this, um, was uh, that of chapter three, which looks at kind of um, the left's problem with race and oh. touches on questions of you know identity politics and. There's a critique of Assad Haider's book in there, um, Mistaken Identity, 
and his kind of beef with Afro-pessimists. Um, not that I go into that in too much detail, but there are things there that I think were really interesting to me, uh, but that most reviewers didn't touch except for Valu. And Valu had a very interesting, uh, I mean, I think he, he said that he probably would have problematized um, identity politics a little bit more than me, but he understood why I wanted to be, I think he used the word sanguine about being too um, critical of, um, you know, I guess, yeah, the kind of the, the, the campus-like identity politics stuff, because I think we spoke about this last time, yeah. and I said that, you know, one of the things that gets forgotten when an older generation or, let's say, a more class over race kind of agenda criticizes um, entrenched forms of identity politics is that they forget that there's been a kind of a 40-year-long assault on anti-racism um, and on um, and on young people, um, leading to the situation in which young people um, today are so much more precarious uh, than, for example, my generation or the preceding generations. So, um, in other words, I was calling for people cutting them some more slack, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I, I remember having a conversation with Gavin, and we were talking about, you know, safe spaces and saying, well, you know, when you actually have the right coming onto campuses and physically sometimes attacking students of color, then you can understand why people want safe spaces. So all of this kind of, you know, fuss about trigger warnings and safety and all that kind of thing really often fails to take into account the extent of the threat. That being said, I think, as I said earlier, there's been a kind of a rapid shift in understanding of the certain limitations of those things. But I would have liked to have had more opportunity to discuss that um, but I was, but there were, you know, most people seem to be the most taken with the discussion in chapter two of not racism. And I think that's because as, um, you know, Yasser Morsi wrote in his review, uh, for ethnic and racial studies, he said it kind of worked as a form of, uh, of therapy yeah. because it was cathartic in the, to the extent that he was saying that it kind of was like validating people's experience and sort of saying, yes you're not crazy in a sense. This is the way it happens is constant denial and reformulation and redefinition of racism is what happened. So it had a therapeutic effect on him, which of course I was intensely uh, gratified mm-hmm. uh, by. Um, so yes, yeah, so I would have liked to have had a bit more engagement on those on those issues. I think we have kind of come full circle because one of the things that I was saying at the beginning of the episode, Alana, was basically referring to chapter three because we have found it disappointing Mm. the response from the left on some of these really pressing issues and i think that that kind of empathetic reading and analysis is needed because actually like the left constantly telling people what to do and what to think it isn't working because of this like 40 year assault as you as you say alana so how can i get people to the point of points about race that we all agree on as a function of power as a technology of power without dismissing what they're saying and i'm not trying to say that this is about as a call for legitimate concernsism i'm just saying look you telling people that way of thinking or their experience actually like doesn't matter it's not going to take people with you Mm -hmm. so i think that that chapter i just think is like one of the best best i think it's one of the only um writings that i've seen about the left that does that does that really important work um and it doesn't surprise me that you haven't had much feedback on that Mm. because 
as you as you say and um Debbie Bargali say like racial literacy is just lacking and I guess that mm. for me like being slightly naive I've slowly learned that the left often has <laughs> poor racial literacy yeah. I didn't really realize yeah. it until the last few years no, I, I don't think you did I don't think I did I didn't think I'd either we've you, been shocked haven't we I, you just assume or the assumption that has been that the left are the good guys right so you assume yeah. that therefore ethnic minorities marginalised yeah. people and I guess we come from that as like um children of like black mm. African Caribbean diaspora that have like mm. been that have families that have been on the quote unquote yeah. left or like the labour yeah. left and whatever mm. and we've definitely been on and I think your book definitely helped me on that and then conversations mm. with people like Michael Richmond with Gavin as you said mm. as well it's been a process of unlearning those things um which as, as as you were saying in the review that someone said that it's been therapeutic and cathartic I think definitely so would you say education then is the key but that seems so cliche right, it seems so yeah. cliche <laughs> it seems so cliche to say so like we need to be educating people right to be, be more racial literate but then again that's the cliche right education yeah, is the panacea it is a cliche and I think it's easily criticisable and I think a number of people have jumped on this this kind of purposeful misreading of racial literacy yes um, which for a start hasn't engaged with the actual liter literature on racial literacy um, in terms of what it actually is um, and i think it's really important to correct it because i think several people have sort of said okay so what are you proposing is just to educate people better and then everything will be fine um, or are you proposing that racism is a question of ignorance um, and clearly these are facile and and i think willful misreadings of what racial literacy is about first and foremost racial literacy is about building if we think about Frances Windon's twine's yeah. original well she's one of the original formulators of racial literacy and she was really talking about how uh, black children can navigate a racist landscape so it's not for white people actually racial literacy it's not for you know here's me benevolently you know explaining to you and and we understand that critique often from black people and other negatively racialized people that we don't want to constantly be put in a situation of having to educate you. Um, and I completely understand and appreciate that criticism. But racial literacy is really about internally building the tools that we need in order to navigate a racially structured world. Now, that's not only for people who are negatively racialized, that's for everybody who wants to commit to um, to an anti-racism, but it has to be a praxis that is solidaristic. In other words, it has to be something that, so while I appreciate, you know, this invocation to say, you know, it's not my job to educate you. I'm also, and I think I've said this before, I'm also very nervous about this notion of like, well, just go and Google it because all we need to do is, you know, look at, um, you know, Sophia Noble's work, for example, the, the extent to which, you know, our search tools are structured by, structured mm -hmm. by racial dominance, et cetera. So we do need to build forms in which that work of building racial literacy doesn't become taxing on a few individuals as it often does, but it needs to be about sharing our knowledges in ways that are in which we lift each other up. Right. Yeah. And I think only through doing that. And I, I do want to say that I think despite the pushback and despite this kind of a, the structural condition is one where race, and we know this is not considered, um, an important topic of study. Like racism, again, to come back to that thing is a moral problem. We can deal with it at that level, but it's not something that should be integral to how our 
how we think, right? How we conceptualize what epistemologies and methodologies, et cetera, and what modes of analysis are there at our disposal. And that's a structural problem that will only be transformed through, you know, grassroots action, et cetera. Um, and so what can we do in the interim is that we must build with the people who have a commitment to understanding the extent to which race structures are every day. Um, in order, and I think that will lead to a crumbling of this, you know, this response that actually class is more important, or we need to be more, you know, universal in our concerns, and all these kinds of the, these kinds of responses, which have really been shown, particularly over the last year, to be so facile. So sick. It's powerful. It's, it's powerful. so sick. I'm it's getting, powerful. It's powerful. Alana's getting a mic drop. It's sick. I, full mic drop. Every, every time. time. <laughs> every time. Oh dear. We're going to have to wrap up there, Alana. Listeners are going to be absolutely gutted because we could just listen to you. I could just listen to you yeah, all day. It, it's like yeah, therapy. I'm, I'm actually speechless. You know yeah, what I'm no. like, I'm like, <laughs> It's just really valid. It's just really validating and yeah. it's just very clear. And it is the types of conversations that we feel very privileged to be able to put out and for our listeners to have. So thank you so much, Alana, thank for you, joining Alana. us. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> no problem. So much speaking. Like you make me think, you push me to think in a deeper way and you know it's really great thank you so much oh thank, thank you. you yeah and listeners thank you very much for joining us we will see you next week see you next week bye bye thank you for listening to the t's and c's with t and chantelle you can now continue the conversation with us on twitter and instagram 